again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you were with us last week, you know that we started a new series called Jesus Outside the Box. And um, we're in week two, obviously. We'll do this for two more weeks. So it'll be four weeks of this series. And, and here's the whole premise behind why we named it this, Jesus Outside the Box. It, it's the idea that all of us have boxes in really pretty much every area of our life where we try to take whatever that area is and shape it into what we want it to be to fit into our box. So we'll do it with relationships. We'll do it with our spouses, maybe a family member or, a, or even a friend. That This person needs to act and be the way that I have determined for them to be that way. And as long as they fit into the box that I've molded for them, then our Relationship is great. I've got no issue with you. I'm not frustrated. I'm not dissatisfied or disappointed. But the problem is is that oftentimes they don't fit into the box. And so we end up frustrated or disappointed or something along those lines. We'll do it with, uh, with our jobs. We'll say, you know, my job needs to fit this certain criteria and I need to have this certain salary and I need to have this certain type of boss or whatever it may be. We have a box for our jobs. And so I could go on and on. We do it with all kinds of things, but most importantly, we do it with Jesus. Jesus needs to function and act a certain way for us to orchestrate our lives in the, in the way that we have planned for them to be with, within our box. And he needs to make the circumstances in my life happen in such a way to where it's fitting into my box. And he needs to bring healing in such a way in the physical and the here and now on this side of heaven in the way and at the speed at which I would like for him to. And when Jesus doesn't fit into our parameters, into our boxes, then we end up dissatisfied, frustrated, disappointed. And it affects the way that we live, and it, and it affects the way that we perhaps move towards him or don't move towards him. What we think of him. God's character begins to be defined by our boxes instead of vice versa. So that's where we're headed in the whole premise of the series. Today we're going to be talking about how Jesus not only speaks about salvation as the great prophet the ultimate prophet, like we talked about last week, but he accomplishes our salvation for us as our ultimate sacrifice, our ultimate priest. Uh, Here, I'll start with this story that hopefully will orient us to where we're headed today. Several years ago, at least 10 years ago, maybe longer, I somehow stumbled upon this this video on the internet of, uh, it was a 60 Minutes interview with Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, some of you know that name, you remember it, you, you, you know the story. Others of you don't recognize the name, so I'll give you a, a brief update. Jeffrey Dahmer was a serial killer. Between the years of 1978 and 1991, he, he killed and he dismembered and he even cannibalized 16 boys. He was sentenced to 16 years of, or 16 sentences of, of life in prison for each murder that he committed. But what I stumbled across was an interview with him in 1993 after he had been imprisoned in 1991. And I was struck by two things. The first thing that I was struck by was just how 
normal he looked. And you've, you've heard this before with serial killers. They, they were my next-door neighbor. I never knew. They looked so normal. And this was how he was. And that struck me. But the second thing that struck me is he began to talk about his relationship with Jesus. He began to talk about how this pastor came in and began, once he was in prison, he began to share the gospel with him and study the Bible with him. And, and he talked about how the reason, the primary reason why he killed and did what he did is because he had a worldview that said that there is no God and there is no meaning to life. So what does it matter to take life? What does it matter to do whatever's natural in my heart in the depths of the evilness of who I am? It doesn't matter because life doesn't matter. But this man began to share the gospel with him, and he began to understand and have a new worldview centered around God and Jesus to say, there is a creator, there is one who created me, and life does matter. And he said, I am so sorry for what I did, and I wish I could go back and do it differently. And then he started talking about Jesus. Jesus has changed me. I'm totally different, I'm totally new, that kind of language. Now, as I watched this, there were two parts of me that were reacting to this. There was one part that was saying, this is really incredible. This is what we preach about. This is, this is what we want to be true, where we see drastic redemption and renewal and healing happening in the, in the vilest of sinners. And we will, we will talk about that and we'll say, this is it. This is, if there's ever been a vilest of sinner, this is it. So this is incredible. But then there was this other part of me that you may be feeling right now that, that was really saying, I don't want Jeffrey Dahmer to know Jesus. I want him to get what he deserves. And then there was this subtle question even underneath that, that though I never voiced it in my conscience, it was certainly there, and it was, it was this. Can Jesus save him? Does the blood of Christ extend that far? The pastor who ministered to Dahmer while he was in prison said that he would share his story. He actually wrote a book about this interaction with, with Jeffrey Dahmer. And he said that his people in his congregation would come up to him and just tell them how uncomfortable that made them. And he even had a college professor in his congregation come up to him and say, if Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to be there. I was sharing this on college campus one night when I was teaching a group of students, and I had, sure enough, I had a student come up to me afterwards and say, there's no way that's true. There's no way that God can save Jeffrey Dahmer. And my question back, this is a student that I knew that I had been spending time with. My question back to him was, why not? Is, is God's grace limited in some way that I don't know about? Is, is his blood that he shed on the cross only effectual for those who are mostly good? Outwardly, this is, this is really at the bedrock of our faith. What we often believe is that we will look at the vilest and say, I don't know, but we'll look at us and say, I'm mostly good. It's certainly shed for me. And what we're missing this entire time is that at the very foundation of who we are, at the, at the heart level of the Jeffrey Dahmer and at the heart level of who I am, although I have never murdered, dismembered, and cannibalized 16 people, I have certainly done that at the heart level. Without question, I am just as much in need of the grace of God as he is. When posed with the question, is Christ's blood enough? Or said another way, is it only for those who are presentable? 
Is Christ's blood enough? The author of Hebrews answers with a resounding, with an emphatic, not only is it enough, it is more than enough. It is fully and completely sufficient for all people and all types of sin. Let's read the text together. We'll be in the same five verses that we were last week, but a different emphasis this week. And so here's what I'd ask you to do. I'd like for you to stand as we read God's word together. Hebrews 1, 1 through 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And these next few words, this one little part here at the end of verse 3 will be our focus today. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we believe and trust, as you say it is, that it is living and active, that it does not return void. And so we pray this morning it would be just that, that it would not return void, that it would be sharp and active, piercing our hearts, that you would make us receptive to what you are about to speak to us. And would you uh, fill me, your messenger, with your spirit, that you would use me for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things I want you to get, take away, you'll see it on your notes, just your two points this morning. The first one is this. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Look at the text again, that, that last part of verse 3. It says, after making purifications for, sin, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's our perfect sacrifice, the one who makes purification for sins. This, that word purification means to cleanse from the guilt of of sins. Now, if you were to open the Bible and you weren't familiar with the Bible, one of the first things that you're probably going to notice is that there is blood and sacrifice everywhere when you begin reading at the beginning. And this is purposeful. This is, this is something that although we may have grown up in church, you may have grown up in church and you're, you're comfortable with it, there's many who aren't. This is strange to them. This is weird to them that there would be a God who demands sacrifice. And for many of us, when we think about sacrifice, especially given the current culture that we live in, this Western, westernized America that we've had for the last few years, a few hundred years, we, we would say sacrifice is, is what they used to do way back when, and we, we really buck against that, and we say we don't, we don't like that anymore. And two things I would say to that. One is we're really the oddballs in that, in that uh, sacrifice has happened for thousands and thousands of years, every religion in the world has a system of sacrifice, and really humans throughout time have done that. And then not only that, it, it's still current. Uh, just a few months ago in Bangladesh, they were having their monthly sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and it happened to coincide with a torrential downpour, and it flooded their streets. And so there was this really, uh, depending how you look at it, really awesome or really gross picture of blood flowing through their streets. Sacrifice has been a part of human activity 
since the beginning of time. I would suggest to you this. It's not that we necessarily don't agree with sacrifice. It's we don't agree with the type of sacrifice. We would say we don't kill animals anymore. But when you look at your life, even today, notice how the natural bent of your heart is to make sacrifice for when you know you've been wrong. When I sin against my wife, the natural tendency of my heart, the very instinct of who I am is to make up for it, to make sacrifice, to leave a note on the table that says, I love you, I'm so sorry, I'm an idiot, that kind of note, right? Or buy flowers, or if it's a really big offense, buy something more than flowers, or maybe make up the bed because I never do that, and I know that she would love that. We make sacrifice, and we do it in all kinds of ways, so it's not so much that we don't like sacrifice, it's just we don't like that bloody sacrifice. But we miss, what we miss when we don't think about it is we miss that this is what had to be uh, happening. There had to be blood sacrifice. Why? Because if God is a just God, if he is holy and pure and perfect, then he has to, if he's going to remain that way, if he's going to remain God and be holy and pure and just, then he has to to punish sin according to what sin warrants. And sin, very clearly in the Bible, very clearly according to God, warrants death. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Think about this. Where is sin? It's in us, right? So we are born into sin. We are sinful. So as a result, the wages of sin is death, which means that God should very rightly and very appropriately Pour out his wrath on us. But think about this. Who made the first sacrifice? Was it man or was it God? It was actually God. If you go back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. And they've sat in the heart of God. He is leading them out of the garden. But right before he puts them out of the garden, what does he do? He kills an animal. And he takes the skin of this animal and he clothes his people and sends them out of the garden. What God is saying from the very beginning is that what I love more than anything else, it's not that God has this deep infatuation with sacrifice and death and blood. It's that he loves substitution. That he pours out his wrath on sin on a substitute rather than on his people. If you look at the book of Leviticus, all throughout the, look of, uh, the book of Leviticus, it says over and over again that the sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to God. And for those that are uh, arguing against the faith and maybe looking at the Bible and taking some things from the Bible that say, look, this shows that your God is a bloodthirsty God, that he loves sacrifice and that he loves the aroma of death. Look, it says it over and over again that these sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to God. But when you begin to unfold the bigger picture of what God is doing from the very beginning till now in the story of the Bible of redemption, what it shows us over and over again is, is it not that God loves death? He loves substitution. He loves the pleasing aroma of the death of another to preserve by grace his people. Sacrifice is actually a measure of God's grace. And so what would happen, the insti- what he instituted, the, the system that God instituted was the sacrificial system as a measure of grace for his people that there would be a substitute consistently happening for them so that they didn't have to receive the penalty of their sins upon them. 
And so the, the picture that you would get if you lived back then, the reality that you would live is that every day you're making sacrifice. We think of the temple, if you've been in or around church, you may be familiar with the, the grand and illustrious temple of Solomon that was, that was finally completed, and you think, oh man, this was an ornate and beautiful, and it certainly was, but don't, don't miss this, it was, it was a place of blood and death. It reeked of death. Sometimes we forget that we are the ones that deserve that. God set up this system to say, it won't be fully sufficient, it'll be temporary, But you bring your bull to me, you bring your lamb to me, you bring this animal to me, and you slit its throat. And as that blood pours out, you are reminded that that should be me because of my sin. And then the priest takes it from you and makes the sacrifice, a pleasing aroma to God. But it was insufficient. It was sufficient for the time. It was temporary. But it was ultimately pointing to the need for a greater sacrifice, to one who would come. And ultimately do what no other sacrifice could do. Because these sacrifices in the Old Testament were animals. They weren't man. They weren't tempted in every way that we are yet without sin, as Hebrews 4 says. They were blemished. Even though they were perfect offering, offerings, they, were, they had been tainted by sin as well. What we needed, what we desperately needed was one that would come who would live the life that we couldn't live in the flesh that we have to be perfect in our place, and then that's not enough to actually take the death, the wrath that we deserve upon himself as our perfect sacrifice. This is what Jesus has done. Now, for some of you, I'm going to pause and just give you a little teaser towards the end. For some of you, you're hearing this right now, and you've been in or around church for a long time, and there's a part of you that's going, Okay, I've heard this. Tell me something new, Jeff, that I can walk out and put on Facebook. Some little pithy statement that just really catches me that will then get me a lot of likes. Like, tell me something that I haven't heard in church before. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we're going to talk about the same things over and over again because it always comes back to our need for Jesus to a grander, bigger view of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice, to our hearts being stirred with affection for this Jesus that would do such a thing for us. And when we begin to get bored with that, then we got a problem. Secondly, I'll come back to that thought. Secondly, I want you to see in this text that Jesus is our perfect priest. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Let me just pull that phrase for just a second. He sat down. Hebrews 10, 11 says that the priests of the old system, the old sacrificial system, that the priests were, were perpetually making sacrifices. Day by day, they were in the temple making sacrifices, and they were standing. And so there's this visual that it never stopped for the priests. They were the mediator between God's people and between God, but their access to God was incredibly limited. In fact, only the high priest, just one man, could enter through the curtain, the divider between God's presence and the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple and then the rest of God's people. Only one day a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest go in and make atonement for the sins of the people and be in the presence of God. So the priests were the mediators between God's people and God, but incredibly limited in their experience of that. Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, that I alluded to just a minute ago, says... 
We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. So what do we get to do? Because he went before us, because he was perfect in our place and was our high priest for us and mediated perfectly between us and God through his death and resurrection, then what do we get to do? We get direct access into the presence of God with full access. Look what it says. It says that he sat down, but then look at the next verse. The next word, he says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, that, that's what I was trying to say. I got ahead of myself. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where did he sit down? At the right hand of God. Now, when you take that and couple it with Ephesians 2.6, Ephesians 2.6 says that, that he has seated us, past tense, seated us, those of us who are in Christ, in the heavenly places with him. So it tells us that Jesus is full access into the presence of God and that because of his sacrifice and because he's our perfect priest, we go there with him. We're there even now if you're a follower of Christ. The the word in Ephesians 2.6 is past tense. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. How can that be? It's because our God is outside of space and time. And when he looks at me, when he sees me right now, certainly he sees the work in progress that is being made more and more into the image of Jesus. But he simultaneously sees the the finished product seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. This is mind-blowing. Jesus sat down. The work is finished. The priest made sacrifice all day long, never sat down. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And he meant it. It's done. Rest. There's three types of people in my estimation in, in, in here this morning. The first is those who this is really new and welcomed news. And I would say, great, let these words and this truth of Jesus fall on fresh ears and on soft hearts. And I'll just let it be that because that's beautiful. There's others of us who are maybe a little freaked out by this whole sacrifice thing. This is weird and foreign and strange to us. And if that's you, I would say, come come talk to me. Come talk to Randy. We'd love to help you understand more of this whole sacrifice and, and what's going on with that. But there's a third group, and this is who I want to speak to primarily. There's a third group in here that I can often be a part of. And that's a group who, like I've said, we've been around this for a while. And quite simply, we're bored. We're bored. We've heard this. How do we fight against that boredom? The primary way we fight against that boredom is that we preach the gospel and we reorient ourselves to this good news of the gospel every day throughout the day, morning, afternoon, and night. And we remind ourselves at the feet of Jesus who we were before Christ, who we are now because of Christ, and who we will be seated with him. And when we begin to chew on that and think on that and meditate on that and sit in that over and over and over again, although human logic says I would be bored with that, there's affection that actually begins to stir as we reorient our hearts to this beautiful gospel all the time. 
Sometimes God is really, really gracious in that he gives us little stories and analogies sometimes that, that are gospel parallels to help press it in even more. And I'll close with this. He did that for me this week. I was in my discipleship group on Monday night, and there was a, there was a man in our group who began to share a story about a, a young couple that he had befriended and really gotten to know well over the last several months, really over the past year. This couple's from here in Atlanta, and they had met over in Alpharetta at Top Golf, introduced by mutual friends. And, and uh, because they were in their 30s, they had, knew, they had known what they had been looking for in a spouse for a while. So they, they met, and they said, you know what, this, this, is, this is who I've been looking for. So they, they, they were, they, their dating was fairly short, and it wasn't long before they were engaged. They both loved Jesus. It wasn't long after their engagement that the man, the soon-to-be groom, began to experience some very strange physical symptoms and very soon thereafter was diagnosed with a terminal form of bone cancer. He went to his soon-to-be fiancé and he said, Sweetie, I, I would totally understand if you don't want to walk down the aisle with me. If you don't want to marry me, I, I understand the emotions of it. And she looked at him and she said, Are you crazy? It would be my delight to walk down the aisle with you. I want you. And I know you're dying, but you're my husband that God has given me. The guy in our group that was telling the story, he wrapped it up by saying, what a tremendous person to walk down the aisle with someone you know is dying. And we said in that moment, we all agreed, what a tremendous person. But then God very graciously gave me this next thought. What a tremendous Savior who would marry a bride who is dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in the trespasses of our sin in which we once walked. Jesus looked upon us and he saw our cancerous, diseased hearts and everything about us that's broken and shattered and fractured. And instead of saying, you know what, I think I'll hold off. I'm not going to marry that one. He actually moved towards us and he said, not only will I not hold off, I want you. You are my bride. I count it as great delight to, uh, delight to marry you. I love you and you are never beyond the reach of my love. This is your Jesus. This is your Jesus who didn't marry just a dying bride. He married a dead bride and then took her death upon himself so that you and I, as his bride, could be alive. This is your Jesus. How could we ever be bored with our Jesus? Who would do such a thing as that? He invites us to come, and as we come nearer to him, as we see more clearly his beauty, we take our boxes that we have for him, and we drop them. And we say, I've got no more box for you, Jesus. I just want you. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word that reminds us and teaches us over and over again our great need for you, Christ. Thank you for your grace that extends to the far, farthest reaches that we could even imagine, that, that we even fail to recognize that when you extended your grace towards us, that we were the farthest reaches. We desperately need you, Lord, and we count it a privilege now to come to your table 
to be reminded even more of your body broken for us and your blood, your blood shed for us. What a tremendous Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.